I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Folks, broadcast, welcome. Thought I'd change it up a little bit this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always get on to me for saying, welcome to the broadcast, folks. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. Uh, I think it's fine. Folks, I think it's broadcast, great. welcome. Yeah, I decided good. to do it Yoda style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it wouldn't work out that way. I don't know how Yoda would say it. Uh, Theology Unplugged. This Theology is. Unplugged. Theology Unplugged, this is. There you go. You got it. <laughs> uh, we are coming to you from the Credo House. Credo House, we are coming to you from. <laughs> and I am joined in studio with Tim and Sam. You Welcome, are, yes. Guys. Welcome. Thank good you. Good to see you. See you. It is good. <laughs> <laughs> Folks online, good to see you listening to the broadcast. Those of you from iTunes or from the blog, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are continuing our series here this afternoon on, um, what are we talking about? I don't even remember. We are going through a series on Calvinism, oh, yeah, and yeah. we have reached the L. Which for you is limited memory, limited <laughs> but, memory. Yep. but it will mean other things for well, uh, we're, this broadcast. We're unplugged. We're unplugged. Uh, Tim, <laughs> we, we are right in the middle of a drive, right? We are. We are in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign, and we are using we're one week this into month. it. We're one week into it, and so if you are on our email list, you have already received emails about this. Uh, you've received some other announcements about some exciting video stuff that we have with uh, the Credo House clips. And uh, But we are in the middle of this spring fan- fundraising campaign. We are seeking to raise, get this, Michael, this is crazy faith. We are stepping out there. There must be a God because we are seeking to raise $60,000 in two weeks. And uh, we, uh, we were very thankful to those who gave over our Christmas uh, fundraising. Raising, uh, but we would just ask you to consider that if this ministry has blessed you, if it has ministered to you, if it's been edifying to your soul to consider your giving, because that is helping us produce programs, helping us produce curriculum, helping us do what we believe the Lord has laid on our hearts to reclaim the minds and to help deepen beliefs uh, worldwide, Lord willing. Yeah, we simply cannot do it without you, folks. Uh, That's so right. if you believe in what we're doing, you may benefit. Uh, but we want you to believe in it and see this as uh, uh, being uh, beneficial for other people as well. Yeah, and if you know people that that you might forward our blog posts or whatever it may be, uh, we would love to to talk with some people or for you to direct people our way as well uh, because we uh, we love this time. Really, it gives us a time to sp- to communicate with as many people as possible our vision, who we are, what our passions are, and where we believe the Lord is leading us. All right, guys, well, you can uh, go online, donate. You can uh, go to the Donate tab right in the upper right-hand side of the screen on reclaimingthemind.org or credohouse.org. You can come up here to the Credo House, drop off a donation. Mm -hmm. You can sign up monthly or you can give one time. We really would appreciate it. Um, now let's get get to the topic at hand. What did you say it was again? Limited memory. <laughs> Calvinism. <laughs> that's right. Calvinism. That's what we're talking about. Uh, this, this again, I remind you guys, I, I remind you each week, this has just been the most popular series now ever on Theology Unplugged. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah, Invitation to Calvinism, and uh, it has brought in lots and lots of new listeners and so those of you who are new listeners, welcome. Great to have you. This isn't always what we're doing. is just trying to invite you to a particular um, uh, 
uh, type of Christianity or a particular theology within Christianity, but this is a very special broadcast where we're seeking and hoping to explain what Calvinism is, Mm -hmm. and I I hope to clarify some misconceptions, which we have in abundance. Tonight we're talking about, uh, or today, we're talking about limited atonement. We've already covered in this acronym of TULIP, which is a decent way we have uh, said of talking about Calvinism, uh, T-U-L-I-P. We've already talked about the T, which was? Total depravity. We've already talked about the U, which was? The U is unconditional election. As opposed to conditional election. That's correct. Um, and we're predestination. Sometimes we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Tonight, we are going to talk about a limited atonement. Now, Sam, you've already alluded to the idea that that is not the best uh, word that can be used. It fits the acronym, but uh, what's better? Yes, the, the word limited strikes kind of a negative note in people's minds and hearts when they hear it as if God is restricted or somehow he is um, not magnanimous with his mercy and his grace. And so others have suggested we use the language definite atonement because there was a, a very definite intent on the part of the father in what he was seeking to accomplish through the death of his son. Uh, occasionally you will hear people talk about particular redemption because there was a particular people um, who were the primary focus of the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, I suppose, however, that we're stuck with limited atonement simply because of TULIP, and it's hard to create another acronym of a beautiful flower that works with mm. with one of the other adjectives. So, yeah. uh, But limited atonement is is probably here to stay, even though... Uh, I, it's not necessarily the best way to describe the death of Jesus to, to try to put limitations on it in any sense. Well, that's, uh, what is it, Lorraine Botner who put the limitations on us by popularizing the tulip, right? Well, he and the, among many others, yes. Yeah. Uh, limited atonement. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, when we're talking about this, that we're, we're describing that the atonement, mm-hmm. which is the, the sacrifice of Christ, was made for a particular group of people. Now, naturally, we would say if uh, if it's limited to a particular group, it's going to be limited to the elect. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, uh, I, I guess, the, the first stab at trying to understand this is to understand that limited atonement or particular redemption has to do with Christ's atonement being made for a particular group of people, namely the elect. Probably the best way that you could say it is it's, it's seeking to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? Yeah. Yeah, for whom did Christ die? Did Christ die for everyone uh, without distinction of individuals, every single person who has ever lived, or did he die for a particular group of people? Now, traditionally, Calvinists have said that Christ died or paid the price, the actual transaction was made for those whom the Father had given Christ, namely the elect. Mm-hmm. Now, before we jump into that and try to figure it out both from a biblical standpoint and a logical standpoint, is this a linchpin of Calvinism? You have, there are different opinions <laughs> on that. You hear me kind of hesitating and hemming and hawing um, because there are some um, Calvinists who would suggest and argue that if any one of the five points is removed, that the others will unravel. Or if you remove one or start one domino to fall, it will eventually take down the others. 
Um, there, a good case can be made for that. Maybe at the end of the uh, our series, when we look back over the five, we can come back and, and address that question. But the fact of the matter is, I, I know some very uh, uh, good friends who are Calvinists who do not embrace limited atonement. Uh, Bruce Ware would be the first one to come to mind, who's a professor of theology at Southern Seminary, who's written extensively to refute open theism, who embraces um, unconditional election. I mean, he contributed to the book, uh, the four views on election that was uh, that came out about two years ago. He's actually writing another book right now on the subject of election and atonement. Um, Mark Driscoll would be another. Uh, Mark uh, does not embrace limited atonement, at least in the sense in which it has classically been defined historically by uh, Calvinists. Um, and there are others as well, but I certainly wouldn't want to withdraw the label Calvinist from them because I think they do embrace uh, passionately and sincerely the the other dimensions and aspects of reformed thought, but they ha- they they stumble over this issue uh, typically because there are certain texts of scripture that they find problematic uh, that use seemingly universal terms when it comes to the scope of christ 's sufferings and uh, so I would say uh, no, it is not a linchpin of Calvinism in the sense that we have many wonderful Christian men who are Calvinistic in their theology who don't embrace it. We call them four-point Calvinists. Um, but maybe, on the other hand, I might want to say, yes, it is a linchpin in the sense that I find it somewhat incoherent, personally, to affirm the other four without affirming this point as well. It and, just, and this is the point for someone who says there are four point. this is the one they're removing. Yes. Yes. I've, I've never heard of somebody holding to... Uh, all four except the total depravity or all mm-hmm. four except irresistible grace. Yeah. Now, there are, of course, some who, who hold to, a lot who hold to perseverance of the saints but reject the other four who want to call themselves Calvinists. Yeah. Uh, my old professor at Dallas Seminary, now with the Lord S. Lewis Johnson, referred to them as whiskey Calvinists <laughs> because he said they only take a fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that's fair or not, I don't know, but it's a good way of remembering them. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah I, same thing here. Whenever I was talking to Mark Hitchcock not too long ago, who is my, my pastor in uh, Edmond, he was talking about this issue, and he holds to all four points except for the fifth one. And I said, well, this guy the other day I was talking to said you can't do that. I think, no, this wasn't the other day I was talking to him. It was years ago. Mm. But um, he said, he said, well, I, I just told him that uh, I, I can too. Mm. And the guy said, no, you can't be a Calvinist if you don't hold to all five. And he said, yes, I can. I am. And I hold the four. And that's the end of it because you can't tell me what I'm a Calvinist or not. Mm. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's true that I think that this is – I don't know if this is necessarily, you'd say, the most debatable one. It's the most controversial one. The most controversial within maybe Calvinism itself, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's the one that is – um, comparatively speaking, the least clear in Scripture. There's more ambiguity. There are more problem passages, I think, associated with this than the others. The only other one that might rival it is perseverance because we have to deal with the issue of texts that seem to talk about apostasy on the part of true believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it is probably uh, common consensus that um, that it is the most controversial issue, certainly the one that, that gets people's juices flowing, so to speak, more than the others. Dan Wallace from Dallas Theological Seminary said that he holds to this logically, 
Mm-hmm. He uh, limited atonement, but he says biblically, I hold to unlimited atonement. And he says those two butt heads, and I know the listener would say, well, you just choose biblically, and it's not as simple as what he's saying there but it is the most difficult i would say myself you know we're unplugged here and that was very unplugged what he just said but i I would say that it's the one that i'm least certain about Mm -hmm. and one that myself depends upon which day which side of the bed i wake up on sometimes yeah i remember one time i was absolutely convinced uh all five points limit atonement was part of what I took in, and then I had lunch with a man named uh, Hull Harris from Dallas Seminary, and he was talking about John. He's a Johannine scholar, I guess you would call him, and he goes through passage after passage and just says, I cannot get past John himself believing that the that the uh, atonement was universal. And if I think John believed the atonement was universal, I can't really militate him against Paul. And so I have to go with a clear reading here, and that is John, about the atonement being made for everyone. Mm. Yeah. So again, controversial. And I, th- I think that's what, you know, when I first came across this, my first inclination was anything that limits the death of Christ or that limits my Savior I want to reject because uh, you know my savior nothing should you know he is he is great you know so if you say did he pick up something that was 10 pounds or did he pick up something that was 100 pounds every time I'll say he picked up something that was 100 pounds mm-hmm. did he pick up something that was 100 pounds or 1000 pounds 1000 pounds because because he's god you know he can do anything and so was his atonement for all or was it for some uh, all because he's god you know he's 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 the best he's the greatest and then and it wasn't until now I've been looking at it more closely. Is that is that I, I think that the opposite is true, I'm, and and we could get into some of the the more philosophical points of this. But but seeing that it, that it seems to me that limited atonement uh, through my perspective now, I think it, it's the bigger view of what Christ did on the cross. Yeah, I would agree. And in fact, it might be important for our listeners to understand that uh, Calvinists believe that Arminians limit the atonement. Uh, in yeah. a sense. All Christians do, in some respect. Calvinists would restrict the sufferings of Jesus to the elect, and but they would insist that Arminians limit the atonement because, according to the Arminian view, uh, the atonement actually accomplishes nothing. It only makes possible the salvation of all, but it doesn't actually secure the salvation of any. Mm-hmm. So the question is, which limitation are you going to embrace? Which do you see as more consistent with Scripture? So is it the in, the limitation in intent, or the, is it the limitation in actual achievement? Or I look at it as is a limitation in breadth or a limitation in depth. You know, how deep does the atonement go for that person that he died for, or how wide is it? If it's wide, it's it's thin. It's just an open door. But if it's deep, then it's 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 all inclusive of of a person, and he the atonement is complete on someone. But yeah. I think we're previewing probably where we're going to go here. In yeah, the next, maybe uh, I don't know where next we're time. Go. So well, it might be good to uh, just to, to try to bring a little clarity to the issue for those who might be a little confused by this. What we're getting at is the question was asked earlier, for whom did Christ die? Or to make it even more specific, when Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We believe that in that moment, and of course the entire duration of his time on the cross, he was enduring, absorbing in himself the wrath of God against sin. For whom and in whose place did he do that? 
when he says when the text says that he makes propitiation or um, uh, to use other terms uh, that the New Testament gives us in whose place on whose behalf for what individuals did he actually accomplish that reality was it the totality of the human race people who in fact as he died were already dead and already consigned eternally to uh, to a, a destiny of separation from God was he suffering for their sins uh, as well uh, or was he suffering uniquely and particularly for the sins of those who according to the you of tulip the father had elected and chosen from eternity past to inherit eternal salvation that mm. is the issue in a nutshell that we're trying to address mm. okay um from a purely logical standpoint, yeah, let's just before we get to the Bible and start looking at certain passages, and I know we've already alluded to them in an earlier broadcast. Um, from from a purely logical standpoint, if you have a people who have fallen and cannot get up on their own, you know they're they're completely depraved, total depravity, uh, radical depravity, cannot exercise their own will to choose God, and you have a God who comes in and says. I am going to unconditionally elect certain individuals, mm-hmm. um, uh, not based upon anything that I foresee in them, the, any, any greatness within them, but on my own initiative. And he elects certain ones. You would think, I mean, I mean, that's what you would think, if, if you're going to send and initiate uh, the, the, the main um, a turning point in the salvation, which is the cross of Christ, the apex of all of history, you would... You would just pay for those that you have secured or you have elected, right? Yes. Um, but, but let me just say something about this, because you've already brought it up when you cited Dan Wallace's statement. And by the way, Dan's a good friend of all of ours, so we can use him here. I, I, I'm not comfortable with this differentiation between what is biblical and what is logical. Uh, I believe limited atonement, definite atonement, is logical, but I believe it is a logic that emerges from the biblical text. I believe there is a biblical logic. Let me just give you a quick example, okay. and just to take off on what you just said. We talked about this passage in John 6 when we were discussing unconditional election. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now listen to the statement here in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We say, great. What is the will of the Father who sent the Son? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So here's Jesus saying, the will of God the Father in sending God the Son is to secure the salvation of all those whom the Father has given him and preserve them so that they will be raised up unto eternal life on the last day. So, the the question we have to ask is, is there an inherent logical point in this passage that we have to embrace with regard to the extent of Christ's sufferings? And I think the answer is yes. If the Father's will in giving the elect to the Son was that they might be saved. And if the Father's will in sending the Son was to secure that salvation and preserve them for eternity, it doesn't resonate in my mind, it doesn't make sense to me 
to say that, okay, yet, but yet the Son came with the intent of actually saving all mankind, not just the elect, but everyone. If the will of the Father was to save those whom he had given to the Son, what is unlimited atonement telling us? It's saying that the Father's will was to save the elect, but the Son's will in dying was to save the totality of the race. And we have the Father and the Son working at cross-purposes. If the Son says, my intent in coming is to secure the salvation of those who have been given to me by the Father, it seems to me necessarily to follow from that, that he gave his life for those whom the Father had given him. Now, somebody might say, well, that's just your logical deduction. You're deducing mm-hmm. something that isn't explicitly stated. And I, I concede that point. I agree. There's nothing in the text that says explicitly, I came to die only for those whom the Father has given me, and I did not die and suffer for those whom the Father did not give me. That is not in the text. There's no passage of Scripture that says that. But I don't see how you can't draw that conclusion from the language that is in the text that Jesus gives us in a passage such as John 6. Or, for example, John 10, mm-hmm. where he says, to, he says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives, lays down his life for the sheep. And then he turns right around and says to the religious leaders, you do not believe in me because you're not of my sheep. Hmm. My sheep know me and they hear my voice and I give them eternal life. And the implication is that he gave his life for his sheep and not for right. and you're not, who are not And he sheep. says, and you're not my sheep. Hmm. Now, So in that passage, he seems to be saying, I am not giving my life for you. That seems to be the so-called logical implication of, of what he does say. And I think it's a logical implication that must be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I want to acknowledge, I want to admit, because my unlimited uh, atonement advocates will come back and say, yes, but Sam, the text doesn't explicitly say what you are telling us is implicitly required. And I admit that. I, I concede that point. Yeah. But it still seems to me we're left with having to address how could Jesus have intentionally suffered in the place of those who had not been given to him by the Father, whom the Father does not intend to save, and whom the Son does not intend to raise up on the last day. And yeah, he's suffering on the cross, paying for the sins of people who will be in eternity in hell. And you're wondering, well, well, why would he do that? You know, we're we're definitely acknowledging that God is God of all, right. not not just the elect. God is God of all, so so logically, he could have died for the sins of everyone. You know, he is he is not he he is able to die for the sins of everyone because he is God of everyone. But what we are saying is that that scripture seems to be pointing us in the direction and we will probably deal with some like what does everyone and whole world and mm-hmm. stuff like that mean? But looking at at, at seeing that when he is dying for a sheep and, and it seems to be pointing in that direction that that he is dying and truly is paying for sins of people who when when you and I sin as elect people, we know that those sins have been covered because we are covered by him, because we are believing in him, and that he is not dying for all these sins over here where people are not uh, taking that upon themselves. Yeah, and, and just again, to follow up on that, if it, if it was the Father's intent, as John 6 says, to secure the salvation of those whom he had given to the Son, then what could have been his intent in the Son suffering for those whom the Father did not plan to save. 
What did he actually achieve for them in a death that was never designed to bring them into the experience of forgiveness of sins and eternal life? And the response could be what he was achieving was the opportunity, perhaps. So he was opening the door for them to possibly trust in Christ. But but then that's going against unconditional election. A couple of logical things that I think I'm going to bring out here in just a moment. But one thing I just thought of, I think it's funny. I mean, I, I just realized here, here we are, three DTS grads. Um, and, and DTS is known as being a four-point Calvinist school, and, and each one of us arguing for uh, for limited atonement. Um, sorry, DTS. Those of you who are listening, uh, I, but, I, I yes, was on. But, but we are thankful I, for I was, the advertising on our well, website. Well, I was ordained through Stonebriar <laughs> Community Church, which you know Chuck Swindoll was the pastor of. And at that time, whenever I was ordained, he was still the president, or he's just coming off the presidency at DTS. And I remember it was really scary because we we had our exams, and the exam was a sixty-page. I mean, it was in crazy uh the exam that i had to take for this ordination and then we had to get up for the oral exam and get in front of the whole congregation we had five or six dts professors and and then the four of us who were being ordained being drilled with all of these questions and then chuck asked the question he says do you believe in limited atonement or unlimited atonement and I mean, I was scared. I was like, if I say unlimited atonement. Way to be so secure be in okay. your convictions I'll here. I'll be okay. I'll get ordained. But if I say limited atonement, I'm going to be in trouble. But that day, I was limited atonement. Okay. <laughs> and I did tell him that. I said limited atonement. And then it turned out that four, no, there were five of us being ordained. Four out of the five all said limited atonement. And we all passed. So that was good. Well, and, and that's why we're saying that this is not an essential issue in that sense of. It's not. Of, and and of, I, I was of, very know, impressed that Chuck passed us. Yeah. Even and though. we loved Allison. Well, and, and I'll do my own little story. Um, and, of course, I graduated in 1977. Long, You guys weren't born yet, were you? One year before okay. I was born. Uh, that was, and I was, born. I was actually <laughs> called in before the Student Affairs Committee uh, and grilled by three professors because they knew my view was of limited atonement. And there was a question about whether my graduation was going to be suspended because of my convictions on that issue. But we had a wonderful and very friendly dialogue on the issue, and at the end of the day, thank God, they agreed to grant me my diploma, and I was out. So We're good. We and both then I'm grateful. I'm grateful to, for Dallas Seminary for all that I learned there. It's a wonderful institution. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so, so the logic behind it is this, and I think that this is what grabbed me more than anything else. I know we've talked about some biblical passages, and we'll probably bring mm-hmm. up some more, but I really had a confusion with the idea that Jesus had paid for the sins of people, especially, uh, I, I think this is more of a problem for those of us who hold the penal substitution. I mean, he actually paid for our sins. He didn't just pay the price for sin in general. He didn't just pay the price as a as a token benefit that that is uh, in place of our sins. He paid for our he suffered for our sins. Now, having said that, if he suffered for our sins individually, you've got every person's sins, if it's unlimited, being placed upon Christ and the wrath of God for those sins being exerted upon Christ for the atonement, whatever transpired during those few hours on the cross, whatever transpired, everybody's sins were paid for. Now you've got this situation where people's sins who have been paid for are still suffering the wrath of God in hell for eternity. So you've got a couple options. Either limit the atonement or get rid of hell. That was my thoughts <laughs> at that point. 
Well, nobody's talking about getting rid of hell right now. No, so. no that's not an issue, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that was wrong. No thing comment. To say. <laughs> yeah. No comment for we'll, another we'll day, another that program. One yeah. But but doesn't that make sense? And here's well, yes, the it does. Here's the thing, folks: is that whenever you look at the tradition, the traditional, uh, let's let's say the um, the alternative to Calvinism, which is Arminianism, uh, that does. Uh, across the board, believe that Christ died for everyone, you will see that I think you, uh, the most astute Arminians will not believe in a penal substitution. Exactly. In fact, here's a perfect illustration of it. The most uh, helpful and in-depth treatment of limited atonement is John Owen's treatise, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. John Owen, uh, the great uh, Puritan... Um, biblical scholar of the in the 1600s. And Owen's treatise had a profound influence on the development of theology. There was a, um, a, a Scotsman, a Scottish theologian, J. MacLeod Campbell, in the 19th century, who after reading Owen's treatise said, if you embrace Owen's theory of the nature of the atonement, namely penal substitution, you must embrace his theory of the extent of the atonement. And McLeod Campbell could not embrace the, the, the concept of a limited extent, so he rejected penal substitution and formulated an entirely different concept of what Jesus was actually doing. So the point being, and this may be something we can address later, you've read, you made an excellent point, Michael. When we talk about the extent of Christ's death, we're not just talking about those for whom he died. We're talking about what kind of death did he die exactly what actually happened at the cross the nature of christ's sufferings is as is as much at stake in this as the extent of christ's sufferings and they are i believe closely related yeah we're going to deal with some more of this next broadcast and some of the problem passages that you're probably looking in your bible right now and saying but 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 what about this and what about that but i think in the end you you can kind of understand the development of this i've got another passage in front of me that's matthew 121 where the angel is announcing the birth of christ and he says his purpose is to save his people from their sins um it's a particular atonement it's a particular purpose in redemption um and one in which again you 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 have Christ not being particular. You have him being universal. And you have all kinds of issues coming up with uh, with uh, substitutionary atonement. He ends up dying as a token for sin rather than for our sins individually. And it's going to be an implication we have to draw out. Keep on going. I, I, I want to keep on going on this, but I can't. Time's up. I appreciate you guys joining us here. Uh, it, it's great to have you each week. Uh, hopefully this uh, series is continuing to be beneficial to you and you're thinking through these things well. On behalf of Sam and Tim, this is Michael Patton and Theology Unplugged. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage 
at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.